there's no pithy introduction today. No hinting at a topic or introducing this or that important person. Instead, I just want to note something special. Last Monday was February 14th, and hopefully by now the significance of that date is more than just a good time to buy that special someone flowers and chocolates. That's right, it was Arizona's 110th birthday as a state. So I just wanted to wish a belated happy birthday to the Grand Canyon State and the very reason this podcast exists. If an inconvenient move hadn't forced me to not put out a podcast episode last week, I would have done more to mark the occasion. Still, I hope each and every one of you celebrated in the appropriate fashion. But there's still more to celebrate when it comes to February 14th, because it marks two years that you and I have been doing this podcast and slowly tracing our way through Arizona history. And I say you and I have been doing it because it's really been all of us taking this journey together. I don't check my listenership numbers that much because this is a labor of love for me, but at the last count, it was in the hundreds. Wow, that blows my mind. The hundreds. So for all you hundreds of people out there, I just want to say a giant thank you for coming along for the ride. We have a much longer way to go, but I think you'll agree it's been a blast so far. Without you, I couldn't say some of my favorite words of each and every week. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you are listening to AZ, the history of Arizona. Episode 85, The OK Corral, Part 3, Cowboys and Lawmen. Welcome back, everyone. I hope you all didn't forget too much over the break, because in this case, everything that was in the past two episodes really is prologue to the main event. Though, technically, today is going to be prologue two. Because we followed the early career of Wyatt Earp as he tried his hand at horse thieving, bordello bouncing, bounty hunting, and law enforcement. But now, young Wyatt is leaving the stage. Though, again, to be fair, he was only 33 years old when his infamous gunfight happened. Today, I want to walk through the other major players, giving each in turn a little bit of recognition for the role they will play in the coming conflict. And I figure the best place to start is with Wyatt's brothers who joined him in that back alley on that fateful day in 1881. Virgil? and Morgan. Virgil was born in Hartford, Kentucky on July 18, 1843, making him about five years older than Wyatt. As I briefly mentioned last week, he would join the Union Army as a member of the 83rd Illinois Infantry, though I don't have much on his time in the Civil War. After getting out of the military, he joined his family in California, but soon began driving for a stage line, something that he helped Wyatt get into as well. Following that, he would go on to take a job grading track for the Union Pacific Railroad in Wyoming as the family was heading eastward. Author Jeff Gwynn says that Wyatt learned to fight with his fist in these camps, while Virgil, on the other hand, preferred to diffuse a situation with easygoing humor and charm. In 1870, he would marry a woman named Rosella Dragu, a woman we know nothing about besides the fact that she married Virgil in 1870. 
This marriage apparently didn't last that long because three years later, he would become involved with a woman named Elvira Sullivan, who was a waitress in Council Bluffs, Iowa, and who would be his companion for the rest of his life. Virgil was in Dodge City for a short time while Wyatt was also there, but then eventually he moved on west until he and Elvira, or Allie as she was known, settled in Prescott. Here he operated a sawmill outside of town, but what really ingratiated himself with the community was an incident in October 1877. Like most stories set in the west, it started when two men were drinking heavily in a saloon. One was recognized as a wanted murderer, so the barkeep called the local constable. The two men became wise to this, so they fled on horses, firing back at the lawmen who were now on their tail. As they went flying by, Virgil happened to be in conversation with the U.S. Marshal and Yavapai County Sheriff, who deputized him on the spot to help out. So Virgil and his trusty Winchester rifle went after the two men, who decided to make a stand instead of simply ride out of town. Both of these men went down in a hail of gunfire, but it was Virgil who was credited with taking down the accused murderer, which got him all sorts of good press in town. Good press that he was able to turn into a job as the driver for a prestigious freight line, which included driving dignitaries around. So in this way, Virgil was able to get into the good graces of J.S. Gosper, the Secretary of the Territory, who was actually doing all the work during John C. Fremont's lackadaisical turn in the governorship. Easy-going Virgil also struck up a friendship with U.S. Marshal Crawley Drake, and these connections helped him secure a gig as Prescott's town night watchman, and then in November 1878, he was elected constable. Fate was smiling on Virgil, so he wrote to his brothers to tell them of this wonderful place called Arizona. One of those brothers was Morgan, who was born on April 24, 1851, in Pella, Iowa. Honestly, I don't have that much about Morgan prior to his tombstone years, aside from bits here and there. But what I do have is he was in Kansas for a time, and then we find his name in conjunction with Wyatt when they were both arrested and fined for their connections to the local Bardello. But much like his older brothers, he would eventually get into law enforcement, serving as a deputy marshal in Dodge City before moving to Montana to work as a policeman once again. That's where he was in the late 1870s when he got wind of Virgil's good fortune down in Arizona. Unlike the other Earp brothers, however, he didn't arrive in the territory with anyone. Sometime after 1871, he had met Louisa Houston, who would become his common-law wife. However, concerned about how frail she was, initially Morgan left her with her parents in Colorado while he proceeded on to Tombstone. She would eventually join him at the beginning of 1881, and she would gush in a letter to her sister that he finally asked for her to use his last name. Unfortunately, neither knew just how much time Morgan had left, which, spoiler, wasn't much. So those are the two brothers who will join Wyatt on that fateful morning in the Tombstone back alley, which means that it can only be time to introduce the other guy who is going to be there with him, the one and only Doc Holliday. John Harris Holliday was born on April 15, 1851 in Griffin, Georgia, to a semi-prominent antebellum family. 
Holiday was apparently born with a cleft palate and a hair lip, so he originally was fed with an eyedropper and a tiny spoon, but later, in an ominous bit of foreshadowing, a shot glass. Eventually, an operation, an 1850s operation using crude ether, corrected the problem. Holiday's father would fight in the Civil War, on the Confederate side, of course, but would resign his commission due to illness. And Holiday's mother died in 1866, possibly of tuberculosis. And his father managed to drive a huge wedge between him and his son by marrying another woman within three months, a woman who just happened to be only eight years older than Holiday himself. This very uncomfortable and awkward living situation was alleviated in 1870 when Holiday left to attend the Pennsylvania College of Dental Surgery. He graduated with his degree in 1872 and was soon back in Georgia practicing his new trade. Except now his life took a huge left turn. He was diagnosed with tuberculosis, or what was then known as consumption. At the time, tuberculosis was thought of something that you could postpone, but not cure. The only thing that was thought to approach a cure was dry air, like the kind you could find abundantly out west. So, at the age of 23, the slender, blue-eyed holiday packed up his things and moved to Dallas, where he opened another dental practice. He and his partner even won several prizes at the 1873 Texas State Fair for the best set of artificial teeth. Unfortunately, out west he found some things he liked a lot more than pulling teeth. Gambling and drinking. Though he claimed in letters to his family that he had joined a temperance society and was now involved in the Methodist Church, Holiday was soon known as a hopeless alcoholic and gambler. He also was what we would call today an angry drunk. Holiday, known colloquially as Doc in the gambling circles, built a fierce reputation for himself as someone who would as soon shoot you as look at you. This was probably for sheer survival in tough conditions, but it was backed up by literally nothing. The real secret is that Holiday was pretty much a paper tiger. Due to his slight frame and frail health, he was not that able in a fight. The famous lawman Bat Masterson would write that Holiday was, quote, a weakling who could not have whipped a healthy 15-year-old boy in a go-as-you-please fistfight, end quote. Of course, this is the Old West, so if fists were out, there were always the guns. But here also, Doc is never that proficient. White Earp historian Scott Dyke writes that, before Tombstone, Doc never made any corpses with his shooting. He once wounded a man in the hand at a mere 10 feet away while trying to kill him. The guy he tried to kill then walked up, took his gun, and clubbed Holiday across the head. Once in Tombstone, Holiday would come in 10th during a 13-man shooting contest. Now, Holiday began roaming across Texas looking for the next card game to ply his skills, and it's somewhere during this time that he took up with Kate Elder. Kate, also known unflatteringly as Big Nose Kate, had been born Mary Honore in Budapest in 1850. Her family had relocated to Iowa, which she would often claim as her birthplace. 
After her mother died, she went off to make her way in the world, which, much like Maddie Blaylock, meant turning to prostitution. She used several names, but often we find her written down as Kate Fisher or Kate Elder. Kate, of course, being another name that prostitutes gave authorities when they were hauled in. We don't know exactly how she and Holiday started getting together, but she would claim in her old age that she married the consumptive dentist in Georgia in 1876, though Holiday never mentioned it and no records of this marriage exist. Like so many women, Kate was the common-law wife of a drifter and a gambler. Except this was no romantic, happily-ever-after scenario. Holiday and Kate fought like cats and dogs, often and loudly. They would routinely split up, only to reconcile a little bit later. The pair moved to Dodge City together in 1878, where Holiday again tried to ply his dental trade, putting an ad in the local paper. And this is where Holiday struck up his fast friendship with Wyatt Earp, someone that Kate could not stand. Wyatt had a kind of hold over Holiday, and his appearance coincided with Doc giving in to his worst vices. The pair then went to live in Las Vegas, New Mexico, when Wyatt came along on his way to Arizona. Despite Kate's reluctance, they followed the Earps to Prescott, where they would live for months, even after Wyatt and his brothers had gone to Tombstone. But in 1880, Wyatt sent Holiday a letter extolling the virtues of the place. And by that I mean a chance to win big off of the vices of others, and that he needed to come at once. This led to yet another Holiday and Kate fight, with her giving an ultimatum. It was either Tombstone or her. But as you might imagine, Holiday was not the kind of man to back down to pressure, so he did finally leave without her. Kate will come back into our story next week, but for now we leave the pair separated, with Holiday running off to spend more time with Wyatt and the fellas down in Tombstone. That's one more piece in position on the board. Now, it's time to take a look at the other side of the aisle, those standing opposite the Earps and Holiday during the gunfight. It's time to introduce the Cowboys. The term cowboy goes as far back as the Revolutionary War, and today, thanks to Hollywood, carries a connotation of a hard-working man's man, riding and roping on the range with only his horse, his gun, and his grit to keep him going. It's all very mythologized and romantic. But I want you to completely wipe that notion from your head. Because the term cowboy, as used in the context of this time and place, Southern Arizona circa 1880, it was a name that was meant to be a slur given to men who were seen as violent robbers. The origins of the cowboys was in Texas after the end of the Civil War. Thanks to the work of the legendary Texas Rangers, most of the independent-minded rustlers and thieves had to find a new place to operate, so they drifted west to New Mexico and Arizona, where they found lucrative business opportunities, as well as plenty of places to drink, gamble, and pay for pleasurable company. The M.O. of the Cowboys was straight-up rustling. The boom in southeastern Arizona had led to a heavy demand for both beef and draft animals, and the cowboys knew where to get both. 
The cattle ranches down in northern Mexico were pigeons ripe for the plucking, connected as they were to southeastern Arizona through places like the San Simon and Animas Valleys, which had both good food and water for stolen animals. And since no one really cared if Mexican cattle were stolen, then why not seize the opportunity to grab some cows, herd them across the border, and cash in? To do this, they turned to the dozens of local small ranchers, who would not only let the stolen cattle graze on their property, but then take them to market as well and get a cut of the action. The need for beef was so great that the butchers and restaurants, not even the U.S. Army, really questioned where the cows had come from. The ranchers and the cowboys had a symbiotic relationship going. Not only did they both profit, but the cowboys could count on borrowing horses from the ranchers, and the ranchers could count on getting help from the cowboys to round up and brand their own herds. And since they were only mostly stealing from Mexicans, they really didn't see themselves as doing anything wrong. Many were either from Texas or had adopted a southern attitude against the federal government, which had broken the Confederacy and was always telling someone what they could and could not do. So, thumbing their nose at government by disturbing the peace, stealing cattle, and even robbing stagecoaches was a form of defiance, not criminal behavior. An apocryphal story has Curly Bill Brokius, who we will have much more to say about in coming episodes, upbraiding one of his men for stealing a family's milk cow. We steal from stages, from the government, and from corporations, he is supposed to have said, but not from babies. This incident may not have happened, but it makes the point. These men consider themselves to be Robin Hoods, not pirates. But however they chose to think of themselves, they gave government officials heartburn. The cowboys might not have cared that they were stealing from Mexicans, who they all had a deep-seated hatred toward, but the government of the United States was very worried about keeping peace with the country to the south. And territorial officials were all for getting rid of this rabble at the fringes of their borders. Most wanted the army to be sent after the cowboys, much like they had been tasked with bringing the Apache to heel, but Congress had closed that option in 1878 when it passed the Posse Comitatus Act, which barred the army from participating in police actions except in very limited circumstances. Attempts to get a Texas Ranger-style system going never really went anywhere, so it was up to local law enforcement to do a job that required a much larger response. And for their part, the cowboys generally kept themselves to the fringes of society where there never was a very strong law enforcement presence to begin with. They did this both to not make people in power so mad that they would actually get off their duffs and do something, but also because they despised lawmen, who represented everything they hated. So, by the time White Earp and his brothers arrived on the scene, there were somewhere between dozens and hundreds of these cowboys working in the area, as part of a giant web of tension that they would all eventually get snarled in. Okay, There is one more player I want to make sure I introduce, though he did not directly participate in the gunfight, but certainly helped lead up to it. And that's the sheriff for Cochise County, Johnny Bean. Bean was born in 1844 in Westport, Missouri, now a part of Kansas City, but left the first chance he got. There was only one place to go in that day and age, so naturally, he drifted westward. 
I've seen it said in one place that he went out to San Francisco and that he later marched as part of Carlton's column into Arizona, but I need to look further into that claim. But anyway, by 1864, at the young age of 20, he is listed in a census as being a laborer in the Arizona Territory. However, he was young and ambitious and wanted to get ahead in life, so he glad-handed people and made friends everywhere he went. It was certainly working because he was appointed clerk of the first territorial legislature in July 1864. From there, he glad-handed some more and made even better connections because in 1866, he was appointed deputy sheriff for the giant block of land that was the original Yavapai County. A couple years later, he also was named county recorder, an immensely important office because accurate records meant efficient tax collection, which at the time was the purview of the sheriff's office, and that's going to become important. Things just kept going up for Bean. He married his boss's stepdaughter, Victoria Zaff, who bore him a son, Albert, in July 1871. Soon his boss-slash-father-in-law retired, and Johnny was there to step into the vacant sheriff's office. As Gwyn puts it, at the same time that Wyatt Earp was barely eking out a living in a whorehouse in Peoria, Illinois, Bean was holding high office with a salary that made sure he and his family could live in comfort and ease. But Bean didn't plan to stop there. He made the risky gamble of giving up his office as sheriff so he could run for the territorial legislature. The gamble paid off, and Bean was part of the 7th legislature that met in Tucson in 1873. For another two years, he championed issues such as wells, Indian policy, better treatment for the insane, building a territorial prison, etc., 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 all things that stamped him as a young, leading politician who undoubtedly was going to go far. But it's right about here that Bean's fortunes hit the skids. In May 1875, his wife filed for divorce. This was not ideal, but certainly not a death knell in and of itself. But in her filing, his wife made darn sure that everyone knew exactly why she was splitting from this rising political star. In that paperwork, Victoria claimed that Bean, quote, has within two years last passed, at diverse times and places, openly and notoriously visited houses of prostitution, end quote. She even started naming names of who her husband had slept with. That sound you hear is all the wind leaving Bean's sails. I feel like we talked about prostitution a lot in the past couple of episodes, but it's worth reiterating that it wasn't illegal as long as the various houses of ill repute paid the required bribe, oops, I mean licensing fees. And it was common everywhere. But prominent clients like Bean were also expected to keep any dalliances secret and discreet, something that he failed to do. And here's the thing. Bean didn't deny the charges. Because as it turned out, he was a serial philanderer. That same smile, wit, and charm he had used to schmooze his way up the political ladder also allowed him to never be without pleasurable company. And it didn't stop with prostitutes either. He carried on flagrant affairs with the wives of friends and business partners. He, if you'll pardon the crude expression, just couldn't seem to keep it in his pants. 
The divorce went through and Bean was asked to pay $16.66 a month in child support for his son. He then went about trying to salvage his career. He was census marshal for Yavapai County in 1876, but then failed in a bid to reclaim his old job as sheriff. Still, he had enough friends, either ones whose wives he hadn't slept with or they didn't know about it, who got him the position as sergeant-at-arms for the 9th Territorial Legislature. In search of a fresh start, he moved to Mojave County and became a businessman, and made enough of an impression to be elected to the Territorial Legislature again. However, he lost a bid to be the Mojave County Sheriff, and since the legislature had moved back to Prescott, he decided to pull up stakes and try his hand there once more. Here he went into business again and tried his best to regain his good reputation in order to win another cushy county office in the next election. But Gwyn tells us how his chances of this hit yet another roadblock due to an incident that would be funny if it wasn't so sadly racist. It seems like a little thing, but an article appeared in the Prescott Minor newspaper stating that Bean had been at a Chinese laundry when a fight broke out. About half a dozen men assaulted Bean, who was clubbed by the lot of them when his gun refused to fire. And that's it. So, what's the problem? Well, Gwyn points out that, first and foremost, in the machismo-laden world of the Old West, when a man, especially a supposedly tough former sheriff, gets a beatdown, you start wondering how effective he is overall. But the absolutely worst part was, he was beaten up by some Chinese. As we mentioned before, the Chinese were probably the most hated, discriminated against population in Arizona cities, which is saying something when you consider how the Amerindians were treated. These were lowly, not even second-class citizens who were so obviously far below their ethnic superiors. For all the white people reading the paper, it didn't matter how the fight had started and the newspaper never specified, or that he had been outnumbered six to one. All that mattered was that Bean had been whipped by some weakling Chinese. So what did that make him? When the Democrats nominated candidates for office in 1880, Bean's name was not on the list. He must have realized that his political career in Yavapai County was over. Luckily, though, there were other places where a young, ambitious man could build his career than Yavapai County. So, in September 1880, the Tombstone Epitaph announced that Johnny Bean, former sheriff and territorial legislator, had moved to town with his son. His goal in moving to this boom town on the southeastern edge of nowhere was pretty obvious. Everyone knew that any day now, the territorial legislature was going to carve out a new county from the eastern edge of Pima County and make Tombstone the county seat. As an insider in the territorial legislature, Bean had probably heard a lot of talk about it. If that happened, then they would need people to fill the county positions, such as, I don't know, Sheriff, and who better than, I don't know, Bean, who had done just that in Prescott. Despite the fact that he was a Democrat and the current administration was Republican, Bean set out glad-handing yet again. He and a partner invested in a livery stable, a good business opportunity since many of the leading men in Tombstone didn't 
own their own horses, but would rent when they went to check on how their mining investments were doing. He was also hired as the new bar manager at the Grand Hotel, one of the swankiest establishments in town where all the major players came to drink. Bean rubbed elbows with the town elite, charming them as he had the people in Prescott. If that wasn't enough, he also got into the local horse racing scene to quickly gain some popularity around town. Since he was a Democrat in a largely Republican-owned town, he had to ingratiate himself everywhere he could. I will note here that Bean is still Bean, though, and he continued to carry on affairs, including with the wife of his partner in the livery business, because, I don't know, he just did not learn from his mistakes. And he didn't realize it yet, but both his political ambitions and libido would soon set Bean on a crash course with another ambitious man in town, because it wouldn't be too long before Bean became the sworn enemy of the other former lawman who also had his sights set on becoming the new county sheriff, none other than Wyatt Earp. I'm going to leave things here for this week with most of our main players now not only on our radar, but in Tombstone in 1880 and 1881. So join me next week when we see how some stolen mules, a stagecoach robbery, and some really shady political dealings will lead everyone down the path pointed directly at the OK Corral. I'm your host, David Ruckhausen, and you've been listening to AZ the history of Arizona. Goodbye.